This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth gear for all types of weather, all kinds of terrain, all kinds of budgets. It's clothing that just works. Check them out at huntworthgear.com. And right now they have items marked down in their winter clearance, 20 to 50% off. Get over there. You got about five more days to check that out. Huntworthgear.com. We're jumping right into our spring bear series here. We got a couple podcasts coming up that we're going to talk about this, but this one is going to be about calling in bears, calling bears as predators. And uh, I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Uh, the video he's got that accompanies this is freaking amazing. You need to check it out. But this is an interesting conversation about uh, calling in predators uh, that can kill you, I guess. Um, but anyways, as always, we've got to give a shout out to our sponsors, partners, all those folks going to be heading to the NRA show in Harrisburg this weekend uh, to hang out at the Latitude booth. So if you're listening to this, um, when it comes out and you're going to be in Pennsylvania, come over, check me out at the Latitude booth. Going to be super fun. Uh, the show is always a great time. Uh, good hanging out with those guys and big thanks to those guys. Uh, Huntworth, uh, working with them again this year. Uh, very excited about that. Zinger and Kanadi not going to be at the Harrisburg show, uh, but those guys, you need to check out their stuff. I've got some of their new, I think they're SBD call, and that's what they ended up calling them, uh, fletchings, and they're shooting those off of the trad bow. So I've not 
given that a shot yet, but that's something that I need to do. Uh, zingers making fletching arrows ridiculously easy. Um, definitely got to go check those guys out. Um, Spartan Forge is going to be at the NRA show, so I'm going to stop in over there, um, see what's what's happening with that. Uh, big Shot Targets, they're going to be there. Uh, man, it's kind of like a... a, a podcast sponsor reunion um, all those companies are companies that we truly believe in good friends of ours uh, happy to work with them but they always give back through our patreon um, as well as genesis 3d they're not going to be there but um, genesis 3d in austin they have a code specifically just for uh, the patreons there are some other codes to save uh, with latitude you can use code bhc to save 15 percent. we did get that turned back on uh, big shot targets you can save 10 percent with bcp um, and then we do have a uh, genesis 3d code just for patreon so if you're a patreon uh, shoot me an email and uh, i will get you that code as well but we don't work with companies that don't give back to the people that support us couldn't couldn't do it couldn't go to these shows couldn't put out the podcast couldn't do much of the stuff that we do without you guys, the listeners, the Patreons, and uh, we thank you so much. As always, enjoy the episode. All right, everybody, Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And uh, kind of as advertised, we're changing up the content a little bit. But uh, for you guys who, you know, haven't quite jumped ship yet because we're going to be talking some guns and all that stuff. And, and you know, that's that's a big no-no on the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Um, we are going to talk some spring bear with, uh, with a guy who um, – it's doing it a little bit differently for different reasons. I think, uh, Zach Bowton, um, has an incredible, uh, film on YouTube, uh, called, uh, turning the tables, I believe. And, uh, it, it was something as we were looking into this spring bear hunt, you know, it's it really not conducive for a bunch of guys who don't know what they're doing to go out in, you know, with this visions of grandeur of like, we're just going to go trudge into the mountains and we're going to track down a bear and, and we're going to kill them with our bows. Now there's people that can do that. And, you know, generally speaking, they've done it before. They've killed enough bears with a rifle that they, they want another challenge or something like that. But we'll get into all of that. Um, but uh, for you, Zach, you know, thanks for coming on here today and, uh, and talking with us and kind of diving uh, a little bit deeper into this. Um, like what's your hunting history or like, how did you get, get started into hunting and, and what's your, your bread and butter, so to speak? Yeah. Uh, I definitely had a bit of a non-traditional entry into hunting and, you know, we won't get stuck there too long. Cause we'll talk about bear hunting and I do love bear hunting. So there's a lot to discuss there, but, um, I grew up skiing a bunch in the winters. My parents ended up living um, by a golf course. I ended up golfing a lot. And then skiing is kind of what led me to, to school in Montana and just moving to Montana. It just felt like it was a different world, even though North Idaho and Montana are so similar, you know, being older and kind of looking at it from a little bit like a uh, wider perspective. But it just seemed like Montana was like diesel trucks, country music, you hunted, you fished. And so... I really just kind of like wanted to immerse myself in that culture. And, uh, you know, I kind of just started hunting a little bit on my own. My parents ended up buying a cabin 
by up by Flathead Lake, which was similar timing to when I moved to Montana. I went to school in Bozeman at Montana State. And we'd actually grown up shooting rifles, which was kind of funny, handguns and rifles, but never hunted. So I had like the gun knowledge. So it was easy to just grab a gun, get a tag and like walk out into the woods. And then we ended up meeting. Um, my brother met a guy, uh, a friend of ours named Tyler McCann. And, and he kind of took us and invited us on our first hunt, uh, which was up on the high line of Montana. And we shot pheasants and coyotes and mule deer and like it was that hunt that really solidified to me that I wanted to hunt a lot. And I'm the kind of person that when I do something, I go kind of 110% into it. And I started looking at how to elk hunt and saw that it seemed like most guys were bow hunting elk. And I bought a bow the next summer and I just like dove in and that's kind of just set my pathway forward. I mean, when I first started hunting, I literally, I had a Subaru. I drove my Subaru up into the mountains and went elk hunting with my bow by myself. Like I was self-taught and that was kind of the catalyst too, for us making content was when we were skiing a bunch, you know, ski films and, you know, Warren Miller, and then some of the adoption of, you know, short edits online was kind of right as we were coming up, you know, through our young adulthood. And so shifting over to hunting, we just were looking for relatable content to get stoked to go out and, you know, go fly fishing or go hunting or whatever. And it was mostly just hunting TV and a very much older demographic. And so, you know, as we were learning to hunt, we were learning to build content around hunting and it just kind of grew into a business and a lifestyle and a passion for us. And, you know, now, I don't know, 13 or 14 years later, really, um, it's pretty much my, my life which is good and bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I feel like that's a pretty common theme amongst what we, we run into here, like the adult onset hunter, you know, now we have mm-hmm. so much information out there and, you know, both good and bad, but you, you know, it's always great to have a, a, a mentor, but the amount of uh, content that's available online to kind of, show you kind of lead you, you know, into, you know, setting up a bow, building your bow, you know, doing any of that stuff is great. And that's kind of how we, you know, have got here today. And and with those adult onset hunters, most people at that juncture in their life, they decide that they're, they are going to go in 110% because they know that, you know, I've only got so much time. So I want to make sure that I'm going to do this as quickly, as efficiently as possible. And, um, you know, you, you go out there and you make mistakes and you, you do learn on your own, but you don't start with like the bad habits of like, you know, you're, you're, you don't have your grandfather's bad habits or your dad's bad habits. The the things that, yeah. you know, you're not locked into this, um, kind of thing. So, um, what was your first like big animal kill? Like your big, like, I, I know you said that that hunt was the one that, uh, you know, kind of got you hooked, but but what, what kept you there, um, as far as, you know, kind of move, cause I don't think for most people in, for us here in the Midwest, like spring bear is not like the sexy thing. Like bear hunting is not like, you know, and it sounds like in Montana, a lot of the locals just regard them kind of as nuisance animals. So it's, or like a predator yeah. rather than like, you know, a big game animal. So, so what was it for you that kind of is like started that? So the the little pebble is the the one hunt with your buddy in Montana, but what kept you hooked? 
Uh, I mean, I would just say I was hooked from there. You know, like <laughs> I didn't really need anything else. Like I just knew that this was something that I was going to spend a lot more time doing. Um, I th- I can't remember the exact sequence of events. Obviously, I killed that mule deer buck the very first year I hunted, and then I I focused on archery elk the following fall and did kill one. Can't remember if I killed a deer or anything that year. Might have went mule deer hunting and shot a buck, but it was really the following September I I shot my first elk with a bow. Um, and yeah. I mean, archery elk hunting with a bow is definitely my number one, probably always will be. Bear hunting has to be a close second. You know, living in Missoula at the time, Western Montana, that whole area has one of the highest densities of bears in the state. And just being an adult and and coming into hunting that way, I think you are thoughtful, even though I was just a college kid about, you know, your impact and what you're doing out there. And it just seemed to me like if I was going to go shoot elk and deer and be a hunter, I might as well be part of the equation and help manage predators. And, you know, through spending time with Tyler and stuff, like he loved calling coyotes. There's tons of coyotes up on, you know, the high line kind of North central Montana. And so we were already exposed to hunting and shooting predators and some of the management of that. So for us, bear hunting was the exact same thing. Why not go out and spend more time in the field, use the gear more, get in shape, learn the country, observe animals, like do all the things that you need to do to be a skilled hunter. Why would you skip sprint? Like you, and we're in college. So it's like, we have so much free time to just get ahead of the curve. Right. And so it was funny. The first day I actually made it away from the truck to go bear hunting. I killed a bear. I went one other time and I tried to drive up a logging road and it was gated. Um, and, and I wasn't able to, but the, the very first day I actually hiked away from the truck, uh, I shot a bear and it was, we went way further than we should have. And I think we probably did 12 or 13 miles that day. And I was just wrecked when I got back to the truck and ran out of water and, you know, but it was such an awesome experience. And just ever since then, every spring bear hunting was a huge part of what we did and how we allocated our time. And it's super underrated in my opinion. I mean, I've probably been on more bear kills than deer or elk or anything else. I'd say, I don't know the exact tally, but between me and my friends um, and family and stuff, it's been a lot. So um, just because you kind of touched on it there, I have it down on my list of questions here, but uh, one of the things I was going to ask you for someone that's new going out to, uh, you know, try to head out West for, you know, I, I think us here in around the podcast kind of see it as a kind of a, um, kind of like a training wheels backcountry hunt. Right. So you can, mm-hmm. you can get a tag relatively easy. Um, there, there seems to be a, a high population, you know, tar- target density. Um, but what are, cause, because you said you did everything wrong. Uh, down on my list was like, what is the biggest mistake that, that new bear hunters make? Um, cause I've heard it in a bunch of different kind of avenues, but as a new hunter going out West and it could be for elk or whatever, but on a bear hunt specifically, because I think a lot of people will go out there with a rifle and they're going to shoot 
what they can see, but it might be across the long draw or something like that, that mm-hmm. makes, makes it more difficult. So, so for you, what do you, what do you see as like, um, you know, some of the biggest mistakes that people make heading out there the first time? Uh, the biggest mistake is probably that they aren't willing to work hard enough. Um, bears, I would say are a pretty easy animal to hunt, but they don't like being around human presence unless they're adapted to it. Like they're getting food or something else. Um, in a lot of the places I hunt bears, it's, it's pretty nasty. You know, we're getting in at least three miles in most of my spots and then climbing up through brush and old snow and trying to get on vantages. Um, I feel like people just, they want the easy button on bears. They feel like, Oh, there's a lot of bears. Like they're just out on the green grass. Like it's easy. And it can be for sure, but my experience and the success I've had always is correlated to working hard, getting away from roads, getting away from trailheads, finding the right habitat. And then just the second thing people don't do is they just won't sit behind the glass all day long. You know, like just you have to glass a lot. People get up on a spot, a glass for 30 minutes, they won't see anything or they'll leave, you know, an hour before dark when a bear pops out at the last 20 minutes of light somewhere they won't hunt in the mornings you know guys like all oh, you know bears aren't moving in the mornings and if i had to pick you know yeah the evening hunts the best hunt but i've located and found a lot of bears in the mornings and then been able to move into where i saw them and get on them in the evenings and so you know there's a few things people don't do well yeah and i think that that's why it's great to have you know, guys like yourself who's saying, you know, you've been on, you know, more bear kills than probably anything else um, to kind of outline that stuff. Because, you know, like I said earlier, there's only you can consume as much content as you want, you know, and, and there's no substitute for like being in the field. But if you're, you know, 20, 30 hours away and you're planning to hunt with your buddies. It's like, I mean, everybody kind of jumps into the same thing with, uh, without cutting, you know, you, there's, you second guess yourself. And, you know, I've told the story a bunch of times with the first time I ever stepped in the, the elk woods in, uh, Idaho is I climbed 200 yards up the trail and got to the top, you know, right to the the road system. And then I just thought, what are we doing? Like, we have no idea, like, where to go. We've never done this before. Um, and it really yeah. hits you. So any of that information, you know, is going to be great for, you know, guys that are listening to this and that are that are considering that. And what's interesting is I, I hear a lot of parallels just from the way that I think you think people perceive bears as here, how we perceive turkey hunting. Cause turkey hunting is like, ah, it's just the spring. There's tons of turkeys. Uh, but there's a lot of people that aren't successful turkey hunting and there's tons of turkeys and you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's it seems easy in theory, but you know, there's, there's an art to it. Um, so when you had mentioned, you know, uh, going out and doing the archery elk hunting, um, coyote hunting and, you know, all of these kills has calling always been in like your toolbox or was that something that it adapted, uh, over the years? It's kind of always been in the toolbox. I mean, just getting to see coyotes response to calls and, you know, understanding that a predator is a predator, 
you know, doesn't really matter what it is. If you can sound like their food source, they're probably going to come check it out. Um, you know, we were out, we didn't, we didn't call for bears immediately. We, we would call for wolves. I did call in a mountain lion, uh, during rifle season one time and shoot a mountain lion calling it in. Um, so we knew it would work. And I think it was, you know, three, four seasons in of, of having killed bears and been successful finding them that we just kind of were kind of, what's the next way to, what's the next level of mastery as far as hunting these bears. And honestly, it's one of the best tactics if you're willing um, to kind of take the responsibility of calling a bear as far as increasing your chance for opportunity and being able to, you know, shoot a bear. You know, the downsides of calling bears obviously is that you're calling a predator in that thinks to your food source. And although it's a black bear, which I, you know, would roughly associate similar to like a wild dog, you know, as soon as it sees you, smells you, hears you, it's going to bolt and run. But I have been around a couple bears in the hundreds that I've seen that they gave me a look that I didn't like, you know, so there's still a predator. They still, if they decide to come, at you like you better be ready because they can kill you um so you just want to be smart and prepared and i think if you are then there's really not a lot of risks to it um and then i forget what the second i was going to make another point that i kind of got lost but well you had mentioned you had said the responsibility of uh calling a bear like Mm -hmm. I, i guess can you expand on that like what you mean by the responsibility of it uh, you know, it's a, one of the most fun and exciting things I've done, but it, I would say that it's something that's for everybody, you know, like spot and stock mule deer hunting. Like you could say anybody could go do that. I don't think everybody's suited to go call in a predator that can kill you, even though it's a black bear, right? Like, um, I think that some people aren't willing to to think through all of the the potential outcomes and plan and just be prepared and be you know as a hunter you need to be a predator i view myself as a much higher predator than any of the black bears that i'm calling in so i'm not concerned although i do know that like this is their home turf this is their territory i don't have all the advantages but if I'm smart, I should always have the advantage. And, you know, some people, we live in a society where they want to hit the easy button. They want to be like someone they saw on a TV or a post and they want to just go do it and they don't think it through. Um, and this, I guess I'm, that's why I'm saying, you know, being responsible and that's just hunting in general. We see a lot of people that aren't as responsible as they should be. And, you know, we all are going to make mistakes as hunters, but there's a lot of just trying to get to the outcome and get your thing so you can tell your buddies and post it up online and not as concerned about the process and learning and like becoming a hunter and uh, really embracing the lifestyle of it. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think here with this podcast and kind of what we're doing, and I talked to you a little bit before the podcast about like our deer camps and stuff like that, you know, we've really been hammering home that it's more about the journey 
and like the being able to share the experiences and getting outside than it is about the, the grip and grin. Now that's a difficult pill to, you know, sell your wife. If you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to spend a thousand bucks, $1,500. I'm going to take a week and, you know, come home with nothing but some great stories and some pictures of landscape. Right. But, you know, it, it, it's definitely more so about the journey than, and then I think that that's why, uh, as you know, bow hunters, we're already going down that path of saying like, we don't want it to be just as, just as easy as, you know, pulling the trigger and loading up the side by side. Right. Um, yeah. but so getting into the, the calling aspect of it, can you talk us through like a general hunt? I mean, people are going to go watch the video and I definitely encourage them to, but in, I would say like that medium form content, you can only show so much. You got to keep people's attention and, and all of that. So, um, you know, from either locating a bear or kind of like, how are you choosing the areas that lend themselves well for, for calling in animals? Or let's say that you spot one a long ways off you know, how far can you call all that sort of thing? Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, I think the other point I was going to make not to jump back, but just real quick, the responsibility aspect is that if you're blind calling and you haven't already seen a bear and watched it and observed it, you know, you do have to make a judgment call in a short window of time. And whether it's a boar, whether it's a sow, I've never called in a sow with cubs. I have called in a sow that I shot that was dry. Um, so there's a little more risk involved, right? Because it's not legal to shoot sow with cubs typically under a year. Um, I don't know how those sows would respond for the most part. The bears I've called in have been older, you know, more mature boars. Um, the, I did kill a sow in Montana uh, in the, in the film, turning the table. So that was a sow. Um, but I was able to watch her and look at her and observe her just feeding before I called to her. Um, but yeah, as far as calling goes, I kind of know where, where bears are going to be living. I mean, in the spring, we get a good opportunity to, to locate bears in a much easier fashion because they are basically focusing on green up. You know, that's their first food source is really just that fresh green grass. And so that doesn't exist everywhere. And finding locations where you have obviously good feed for the bears, you have kind of escape cover nearby and places where they can bed down and, and stay cool. And then water, you know, like any animal needs water. Bears typically like more moist areas they got a big black fur coat on and spring it's cooler but you know they do tend to stick to areas that are you know a little bit higher in moisture available moisture versus really hot dry areas now i mean there's bears down in the desert you can go shoot bears in arizona and stuff like that but you know for me it's really feed you know proximity to human presence or like availability of like escape cover you know finding somewhere they can get to where they're safe you know they're probably not going to be in the middle of a one mile you know giant huge open face that you can see from the most obvious road right like they're probably gonna be tucked back in you know the back head end of a basin that you can't see unless you hiked in two miles and 
maybe it's a hundred yards wide and there's heavy timber on both sides that they can run too quick and there's a creek in the bottom or something. So I'm finding areas where there's bears or I know there's bears, you know, obviously looking for sign for tracks for scat. All these things are going to give you clues on on where bears are at because anytime you're calling to an animal, they got to be able to hear it to call them in. So you have to find proximity to the animal. Um, a lot of times the highest success is to actually see a bear first and then move in, you know, to within earshot of that bear set up strategically and call. Seems like in those situations, I I feel like over half the time, the bear's going to come in and check things out. Some bears come in kind of cautious and just kind of curious and other bears come in who have killed fawns or elk calves before and they're looking for a meal. Um, and then obviously you, you can blind call as well. I mean, I've definitely went into areas where there's a lot of bear sign the right time of year. And I know they're probably not too far and I've just sat down, set up and called and called bears in. So there's not just one strategy, but identifying area where there's a decent density of bears or a, bears living in a, a smaller location and then if you can observe them great if not moving in getting the wind right getting cover right and you know trying to f- predict where you think the bear's at and you know, it's just like calling coyotes calling out calling turkeys you got your shooting lanes you got where you think the animal's going to come how they're going to be looking for the call where they're going to stop all these things so so <sighs> This is going to be like an impossible question. So just kind of bear with me. Right. But, you know, so as a, a elk hunter, as a, a turkey hunter, uh, I'm, I'm a terrible coyote hunter. So I don't, I, yeah. can't, I can't tell you that. Um, but, you know, you, you, you do it long enough and it's kind of very nuanced, you know, like you're, you're taking the animal's temperature, but those animals there are, are generally vocalizing back. Right. So we're not dealing mm-hmm. necessarily with the predator. We're dealing with breeding and stuff like that. So yeah. when you're setting up in these two different scenarios, in a blind calling scenario, in one where you've snuck into a, a, a bear that you, that you've seen, and you know, you're trying to try to draw to you, uh, how long do you give these, uh, calling setups, you know, how much time are you, uh, giving each one? Um, and then you had said about boars and sows, et cetera, like how do they respond differently? Uh, I wouldn't say that they respond differently. I've seen both boars and sows just as soon as they heard the call come full tilt and getting as close as they can do it. Um, as far as kind of how I approach the calling it's like any calling if you're a good caller you're building a scenario in your head right it's a believable scenario that when that animal hears that you're you're painting a picture in their head with like huh all right i'm gonna go check this out whether it's mating whether it's predatory whether it's whatever it is um for me all my calling sequences are pretty similar i don't typically call more than 20 minutes it's, I know if you spend some time researching online, some guys will say you got to call for up to 40 minutes because the bears will come in really slow. And I'm sure that that's occurred and can occur, but I found that most bears, if I'm within earshot of them, they're going to be in within 10 minutes. I mean, if it's a really good spot and I feel like there's bears in the area, I'll hold, you know, extend it out to 20 minutes just on the off chance. 
which I've seen that in coyote hunting. You know, I know there's coyotes in the area and for whatever reason, it's like 15 minutes, like one pops up and you're like, like, did you just wait long enough to see if I'd keep calling, you know, like, are you that conditioned to it or whatever? But the, the scenario that I always have in my head is just a young fawn, you know, mule deer is in, is most of the areas in Alaska, the blacktail similar. And it's, it's gotten separated from its mother or it's got snagged up in something. And it just kind of starts soft, kind of that, like that, like mom, you know, just like calling for mom. just like, Hey, like mom, like I need some help. And then, you know, slowly as time progresses, I ramp it up either. Like if, if they were caught, if that's what I'm thinking in my head, like they're snagged up on something or caught in the brush or whatever, like now they're kind of starting to freak out or they didn't find mom and now a predator's coming over and they're freaking out. So I just kind of slowly build the scenario up into my head to where it's full on this fawn's just getting eaten alive, attacked. And then it kind of, you know, that's kind of the end of it. And then for the calls themselves, like, pardon my naivete here but i mean do they make bear calls for like fawn in distress or are you using like a you know just a elk cow call that you're using frantically and and a little bit higher pitch uh they do make bear calls but i've just always used stuff that i've just had predator calls from calling coyotes and just found something that i liked you know, it's basically just a fawn ball and you could use a reed to do that. You could use a lot of different calls. Um, I use a bobcat call a lot. It's just a primos catnip. You know, it's not, not a, uh, a bear call at all. I used it for calling in all kinds of stuff. I've killed in coyotes and wolves and bears with it. Um, I went to Alaska a few years ago and there's some guys up there that make custom calls for calling in Sitka blacktail deer. And it's basically a deer call. And I've used that in Montana to call in bears. Uh, we actually went up back up to Alaska last spring. The film will be uh, actually coming out here middle or late February, but we went black bear hunting from coastal, you know, Southeast Alaska and used that, that blacktail deer call and called in three of the four bears that we shot all big mature boars um it doesn't it doesn't really matter i mean obviously anytime you are an elk caller or a turkey caller or a coyote caller you gravitate your personality your style to certain sounds we're human beings we we like what we like but i don't think it matters too much as long as you embrace the sound and in in your head believe that it's going to work so i guess what you know, I, I'm just kind of trying to process all of this and, and, and thinking of it, like in terms of anything, um, especially with calling, like you can't like elk, you can't kill elk, you can't kill deer, you can't kill turkeys that aren't there. Right. So yep. the number one thing has to be getting into an area that, that has bears. Um, sure. it, <sighs> let's say that you were in a situation I guess Alaska would be just fine um, because you're, that's like me going to Montana, like you're, mm-hmm. you're not flying out there to scout and kind of, yeah. kind of going. Um, 
how much time are you spending like to locate bears ahead of time? You, you said one of the things that people want is the easy button and they don't want to spend the time um, mm-hmm. behind the glass. Um, you know, we talk about it in whitetail hunting a lot where if you go out of state, a lot of people will spend the first three days just driving around, looking at spots, seeing where there's trucks and then trying to glass up and locate an animal that they want to kill. Um, Mm -hmm. how would you recommend someone in our situation or kind of like, how did you do it in Alaska for locating bears in brand new territory? Uh, well, Alaska's a little bit unique. We had skiffs and you're basically antelope hunting for bears. You're just driving around essentially in a vehicle, which happens to be a boat and glassing for them on shorelines. Um, so that's probably not a very good example, but if I went to Alaska and I didn't have to, didn't have access to a boat, had to hunt road systems or, you know, access from roads to bays and coves and whatever. I would, I would try to be fairly diligent in my online scouting, just so that when I get there, I'm not trying to find areas. I have a sort of a library of spots that looked good. And I'm not going to go too deep because if you've hunted long enough, you know that Onyx, Google Earth, whatever mapping software you use, when you get boots on the ground, you get there, it doesn't always look the same. That rope, and, the, and really I learned there. this. I, I learned this early on because it was like back in the day. You know, like Onyx didn't exist when we first started hunting. You know, there was Google Earth, and that was kind of it. There's some other topograph, topo maps, and stuff like that. But we would just drive out and then use gut intuition, looking up at the mountain to say that spot looks good. And now we want to think that we can look at a computer and know exactly where the animals are going to be before we get there. And I think it does more harm than good a lot of times, but obviously looking at maps, having a comprehension ahead of time of where roads might go, where access points might be, what the habitat might look like is going to allow you to make better decisions on the ground when you get there and something doesn't pan out. But then it's just, yeah, just boots on the ground. You know, I'm going to start finding roads up there. It's, it's very thick, right? So bears are going to have to come out of heavy cover to feed, which is going to be cut roads, clear cuts, and coastal areas. And I'm just going to put boots on the ground in as many of those areas as I can. I'm going to be looking for fresh tracks and fresh sign. And also just grass that's been, you know, the tops have been bitten off. And it's pretty apparent when animals have been heavily using an area. And even if it's middle of the day and I see a good spot, okay, maybe I come back here in the evening. And you can do the same thing with Montana. You know, there's a lot of logging country and you can literally say today, I'm going to walk, you know, three different logging roads. I'm going to walk five miles on each of them. And we're just going to start looking at the ground. Obviously I'm going to glass a little bit. We're just going to go start to get a feel of where these animals might be. In that situation, that, that time behind the glass, like, in that scenario okay so you say okay we're going to go down these say these three different logging roads we're going to go five miles we're going to you know walk we're going to look to see what we can see um let's say that you get to a point you know at the head of one of these drainages where you've got that thick timber on one side thick timber on the other and you've got that little meadow there how much time are you spending 
glassing that particular one. I mean, obviously Mm. outside of that, like gut situation, that gut situation tells you, Hey, this is what we're looking for. Yeah. But now what? (laughs) Ah, yeah. I mean, if my gut really said that I should sit there and look at it, I probably should listen to my gut. It seems that your gut's right more often than it is wrong. But, uh, if it's a small piece of real estate, I typically won't, unless it's my best available option. Like I can't pull up and move somewhere else that day. I won't typically, you know, sit there and glass it for four or five, six hours. Bear hunting in the spring, at least in, you know, Montana and some of these Western states, you can get high vantage points and you can see five, six, seven miles. I can see, you know, 20 square miles of country. And my only objective is to locate bears. I have no intent of hunting them that day. I just am going to sit there all day and I'm going to say, we saw a bear at 1030 this morning on that ridge. At two o'clock, a bear popped out over there. Five o'clock, you know, I saw a bear here and just like getting a bead on where these bears are so that the ensuing days I can now move into those areas in the spring, unless it's really late in the spring, you know, those bears are just focused on food. If they've got it good, if there's no pressure, like they're not going anywhere. So it's not a big deal to give it a day and go back in the following evening. Now, if it's late May or early June and the rut's coming up, you know, you're going to start seeing bears. If you see them, that's probably the last time you'll see them. You know, they're moving a lot. But early to middle spring, like bears are pretty locked into areas for the most part. And you can typically turn them up at a later date in that same spot. And so from a calling perspective, how does the the rut or those later season transient bears how are they reacting to calls or how does calling lend to that type of scenario well that's a good question i've honestly never really called bears a lot later on in the rut you know for me the peak bear hunting time is really at least in montana middle of may early to middle of may just because the food source condenses the bears into smaller locations which makes them easier to to locate and they're still responsive to the call so it's sort of a best of both worlds right like i can spot and stalk them or i could call them later on in the season like the available habitat that the bears can actually live in is 20x you know it's such a larger land mass to have to try to cover so and then with that being said how does, because that's one of the things, I mean, doesn't matter if you're going on vacation to Mexico or you're going to Alaska or you're trying to plan a hunt in September or, you know, when you, when you're dealing with weather, um, everything can change on a dime, especially, you know, in the mountains. Now this year, particularly in last year, it seems like it's been a pretty mild winter in Montana. Um, yeah. How does that affect the bears? And then one thing that we don't necessarily have to deal with here in the Midwest, you know, thankfully is, uh, fire, you know, I mean, when you guys don't get, uh, snow, you don't get precipitation. Now we're looking at an entirely different type of scenario. So you're almost starting with that 20 X, 
you know, yeah. uh, range. How does that change the way that you uh, approach the season? Yeah, every year is different and there's not really like a set playbook that you can rely on every year. Like last year was a pretty tough year. We had a lot of snow and spring was super late and like I definitely saw less bears than I normally see. It was tougher to turn them up and can't really do anything about that. Like you get the conditions you get. Um, yeah. You kind of just got to show up, see what the playing field looks like and play the game. Hopefully you can figure it out. Right. But. And then we'll switch gears here a little bit and talk about um, equipment. Right. So from a, the way that you're, hunting like take us through your your general loadout for uh, you know the way that you're calling how you're hunting um you know gear that's maybe overlooked by someone who's never been out there before yeah um i mean the gear that i take is pretty standard for really any mountain hunt that i'll go on but i mean in the spring obviously good boots two pairs i'd I don't go on any hunting trip without a backup pair of boots in the truck, but a lot of guys will take one pair of boots. They get them wet, don't have a way to dry them out. Now you have wet boots all week and your hunt's ruined. Um, good pair of gaiters. Typically you're going to be crossing creeks and streams. Also does help a little bit as far as keeping ticks off you. Uh, depending on how cool you are with ticks or not, you'll want to have some type of spray to try to help repel them. I'm pretty used to them at this point. So I just am diligent and checking at least once a day and getting them all off me. But, uh, from that point, I mean, any, any hunt in the Western U S like this, I think a good backpacks key, it's kind of like the foundation for all the gear that you're going to carry with you. I work for stone glacier. So obviously I, I do think our product is a really high quality product, but being an avid user, I'd say Stone Glacier, Exo Mountain Gear, Kufaro would be, you know, my top choices of packs that are going to fit the bill. They're designed and built by hunters and they're made in the U.S., right? Like, I don't, I don't know why you'd really have to stray from that. Although there are other, are other options. Those would be my three picks as far as stuff that guys can go try on and see what fits them and they like the best. But a good pack is going to go a long ways. Good rain gear. I think something that's nice to have in there is is a tarp. Uh, if you're going to be spending a lot of time blasting on the side of the mountain, it's a lot nicer to be undercover versus just sitting out in the open in your rain gear. Um, that's something that gets overlooked. And then just even knowing how to set up the tarp. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at it, but having done it a handful of times makes it a lot more uh appetizing to be like hey you want to set the tarp up versus like ooh, mm, that's i don't know how to do that no you know like <laughs> it's pretty quick and simple and easy and to be able to sit under it and be comfortable and make food and glass you're going to end up seeing more especially if the conditions are you know there's that possibility of precipitation um i don't always hike with a trekking pole but i'll typically carry one you know it's definitely a good thing to have bear hunting bears can live in some pretty wild country. And in the spring, it's, you know, usually a little bit wetter and slick and depending on how good you are on your feet, a trekking pole can be an advantage. 
good glass is always helpful. It's obviously an expensive piece of gear, but um, good glass. And I'd say being able to at least put your binoculars on a tripod or a trekking pole or some stable platform, because a lot of times bears will blend in pretty well with stumps and logs. And if they're feeding, they're not moving a lot. And sometimes it's just, you'll catch that little bit of movement where if you're just up holding your binos and shaking and you might not catch it. So anytime you're glassing, you know, a stable platform for your binos or your spotting scope is good. Um, I'd say definitely have some good fire starter. A fire is real nice in spring. The weather can change a lot. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of it as far as gear goes. I mean, like always, anytime you're going to be potentially glassing a lot, bring enough layers to stay warm. If you're cold, you're not going to want to sit on your glassing knob. Um, so yeah. So a couple things, um, that, uh, well, one thing I guess we'll, we'll start here. Um, what about like first aid? Because I think one thing mm-hmm. for most of our Midwestern hunters, that's something like we're never going, you know, more than a mile or so from the truck and we're, you know, going to be, it's not going to be a big deal. So what are, mm-hmm. what are you putting in your pack or, or bringing as a staple for first aid? I pretty much just buy kind of a standard backpacking first aid kit. Uh, I want to say mine's maybe adventure medical kit, or I don't remember the exact brand name, just a smaller backpacking size first aid kit with the essentials in it. I'm pretty sure it's like a waterproof bag. It comes in, but, um, I don't really do much else other than I'll bring some ibuprofen, make sure there's enough band-aids in there, make sure that there's, uh, if you have foot problems enough, you know, mole skin or whatever it is you need for your feet. I fortunately don't have boots that fit really well and spend enough time out there that my feet are in good shape 99% of the time. Uh, I don't carry a tourniquet, although I might just, you hear a lot of people say that it's a smart idea and you don't ever want to be the guy that's like, I didn't have one and I wished I did, but you could say that about a ton of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously serious bleeding is going to be a serious situation in the back country. A lot of other things are going to be pretty minor. You know I mean? If you break a bone, most likely you're not going to be in a life or death situation. It's really blood loss, right? So I carry quick clot. I'll add quick clot to my kit. Uh, but like I said, I don't have a tourniquet, but it's pretty basic. You know, I've spent enough time out there and found that I don't need a lot. You know, obviously some small minor cuts you want to be able to clean out and cover up so they don't get infected. But And then I'm not sure maybe because I know being out there as much as you have in as many different places, like you've had to, you know, at least have this thought, um, you know, for us, we're as a. Eastern hunter heading West, you know, we're, we're always afraid of the boogeyman, right? So do we need, Mm -hmm. and then that big elephant in the room would be that big brown elephant, uh, you know, out there, right. And especially when we're talking about calling. So, um, bear spray sidearm, like, and, and and I guess, have you found yourself in a situation with, you know, any, 
any brown bears or anything like that? No, I don't call in grizzly bear country. <laughs> I can't say that I never have, but that's my rule is to not. I'm in the industry and it would be unfortunate from an optics standpoint if I was just blatantly calling grizzly bear country and had to, you know, shoot a grizzly bear. I personally wouldn't feel like I was in the wrong there, but I could see how the optics might not look great, you know? And I think that grizzly bears are, they're a totally different beast from a black bear. So I, I avoid that. If I am spot and stock black bear hunting in grizzly bear country, all, if I'm not packing a rifle, you know, if I'm bow hunting, I'll pack a handgun. If I'm packing a rifle, I'll typically just carry bear spray. So it depends on what my primary weapon is. Sure. Sure. But I mean, I, 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 again, from the listener standpoint, there's people who are at home right now going like, he's not even talking about it. Like (laughs) what, what, you know, um, in those sorts of situations, because, you know, when I was in both Idaho and Colorado, I mean, and it's, you know, most of the very rural places I I was there, like everybody Uh carried a handgun anyway. But it was like a big thing. And then the guys that we were hunting with that were locals were like, oh, you don't, you know, there's no, there's nothing out here yeah. that's going to get you. You need to worry about moose more than you need to worry about, you know, any bears or any predators like that, lions, whatever. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in the woods and I'm thanking God that I haven't had any bad encounters with bears. But I like to think that that's attributed to just, you know, being aware of where. Your the the likelihood of bumping into a bear is higher. You know, if I'm walking by a noisy creek and it's brushy, I've definitely pulled my handgun out and held it or my bear spray. Not that I'm actually worried about running into a bear, but I just know that in that area, if I did, it would be an immediate in your face thing. And it's easy, you know, to at least walking on a trail where I'm not as likely to fall or whatever, you know, like to have that in hand. But I think some people just kind of forget about it out there. They get focused on other things or they're new to it. You know, you you can only process so many things in your head and you're so focused on your primary objective. that sometimes you kind of let your guard down on things that you're not thinking about every second of like, where would a bear be at? Or like, where are, are, areas i should be more cautious about bears so sure and i and you know a lot of times like that i think you know you're you're so focused on you know getting to the next spot like we've all jumped deer and spots where we're like i never thought there'd be a deer there because i was so focused on where i was going and then in that scenario that you're talking about i mean that's the absolute worst case scenario is you come around the corner and there's a sow with cubs and you're just you startle them, you know? So, yeah, yeah, I think that that's a good, definitely a good, um, bit of information now for you when you are hunting with a bow, um, you know, as far as equipment, I, you know, looking through some of your social media posts, you, you know, it seems like you're very much to what you said, diving into these things at 110%. So you're mm-hmm. posting up, all of the reloading and all of that sort of stuff. And then it looked like your arrows had not only numbered, but it had grain weight on there yeah. as well. Um, so from that setup, like what is a, a 
a typical or a I guess what is like necessary for arrow weight and like a preferred broadhead for bears, um, you know, with a, a lot of fat, a lot of hair, uh, all of those things. Yeah. I mean, I'd say like low four twenties, you know, as far as grain weight is, you know, I really probably 400 and up. I think my arrows are, can't even remember what they are. Upper to mid four hundreds, I think somewhere in there. Maybe I've shot some that have been low five hundreds, but anywhere in the four hundreds is going to do the trick. I mean, if you're pulling seventy pounds and don't have like a crazy short draw length, I'd say you can shoot any broadhead you want. I personally have uh, had a lot of success with mechanical broadheads on bears. They have a thick, not not a thick uh, in from a penetration standpoint, but like a thick coat from like a blood loss and like bleeding standpoint, I've just found that if you shoot them with like a two blade fixed, it doesn't leave a big wound channel and it just clots up. They don't bleed a lot. Most of the bears I've seen shot with like a sever or a grim reaper or rage. I mean, it cuts a hole big enough to almost put your fist through and the, the blood trails are great. They've died super fast. So, um, I typically bow hunt with the same setup, whether it's elk, deer, bear, whatever. I usually have two or three mechanical broadheads that I really like. And I usually have, you know, two or three fixed or like a hybrid broadhead. Um, the blood sport grave diggers, it's essentially a fixed two blade with two bleeder blades that expand out i've those have flown super well for me and they are awesome uh the severs are really really good as far as i like how they can pivot around ribs and stuff so and then shot placement on on a bear um you know for for most people you know what we've been told is like center of center but is that what you're experience has been or, or what's your point of aim on a on a bear well i i never really try to hug the front shoulder super tight on any animal i always like to kind of space back like a you know three four inches off that and that's kind of been my shot i've shot a lot of bears um i know guys say center of center and i'm not gonna say that anyone's wrong i'm sure that you can get away with a shot further back on a bear but anytime you're a hunter and you're bow hunting or rifle hunting you want to try to be as specific and thoughtful about wherever you're going to put your bullet or your arrow right and if we're looking at an animal in front of us and trying to understand where the vitals are inside of that thing it's usually if you took the time to say, that's where I want to hit, you usually didn't make a mistake, right? It usually was that your arrow, your bullet didn't hit where you wanted it to hit. So I think as long as you're just taking the time to aim, <laughs> which some people black out and forget to do. And on a, on a black, at least a black bear, it can be tough, right? To discern parts of the bear, but I'd say it's if you're having difficulty seeing a shoulder or seeing the vitals, I'd probably err, you know, a little bit further back than forward, closer to the shoulder for sure. 
And then, you know, we kind of asked this on most of the podcasts, but so what is your overall bow setup? So what bow are you shooting? Rest? I think all I'm, that I'm stuff. still, sh- I'm shooting the Matthews VXR. Um, I mean, I've been fortunate to get new bows a lot and I kind of just was over that because it's a lot to try to set up a new bow, you know, whether it's your first bow or your first, you know, nice bow, or it's a new bow every year. Like, it's just so nice to have a bow that you can shoot year after year and be comfortable with. But yeah, I'm shooting uh, the VXR and 70 pounds, 29 inch draw length. I shoot the Matthews, whatever that little QAD drop away rest is. They're fixed two piece quiver. Uh, a couple of years ago, I switched over to the, the spot hog. I think it's the hog father XL. It's a two pin vertical slider which has been really nice. Um, arrows I'm shooting Eastern pro comps. And then I was hunting with a back, uh, or with a hinge for a while. And then I switched back over to a, a thumb release, which I shoot the same way. It just, I had target panic pretty bad five or six years ago and had to like really spend a lot of time I've basically figured it out myself. And now there's guys like Joel Turner that can articulate the process much better for people and is super helpful. But I had to like fight through it and I was even punching the hinge. So I had to shoot a hinge a long time to like actually build the muscle memory to go shoot a thumb the same way. But now I shoot the the thumb just because there are opportunities where in a hunting scenario, you need a shot to go off right now. And I find it easier to make that shot go off right now with a thumb versus trying to yank and twist through a hinge. So, yep. Yep. I can totally see that now with that, with that site, it's an interesting, um, I don't know. I, so for when we started to go out West elk hunting, like we wanted a multiple pin. So like, like I'm shooting, uh, one of the HHAs that's, uh, four pin slider. Um, but in that scenario, like when you're calling in something that's kind of, you know, fast or can happen fast, bang, bang type thing. I know you're in your mind saying, okay, this is where I think they're going to come. This is where I want to shoot them. But like, even in your video there, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I I guess you did have time to like adjust the site, I think, but, 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 you know, it happened so quick. Um, yeah. Have have you run into situations, or I guess what what's the distance that you're always trying to to shoot these bears at? I mean, twenty yards is really the bread and butter, right? Twenty or thirty on my two pin slider. I think I can't remember how it sets up, but if I have my top pin at twenty, I want to say my next pin's like thirty three, or I don't remember exactly. But and then I can shoot off my bubble. And it gets me out to like 40 or 40. I forget exactly how it works out. I always have to remember before season, but um, I can shoot a pretty big wide range. And, and the thing is, it's just like, are you going to go practice? Like I'll go practice shooting between pins and not adjusting my sight and going to 17 yards, going to 38 yards and getting comfortable with it. Cause you need to like build it into your brain. And I've already lost. It's like a foreign language, right? Like you're really good when you're speaking it and then you don't speak it for three or four months. And you're like, I don't even know how to say that anymore. 
um the same's with bows you know like you can shoot a bow a lot but if you take time off you still need to like dive back in and practice all the things but i used to shoot a five pin slider from black gold and those are nice it's just uh i've found that i need to be intentional when i shoot my bow at animals if i rush things i make bad decisions and the slider you can call it a uh kind of i'm cheating or something and i should just own it in my head but it does force me to be intentional with the yardages and being thoughtful about my process so and then obviously from a, a visual standpoint i think a single pin's a way cleaner sight picture than a five or a seven pin but there's no right or wrong way there whatever it is that allows you to put an arrow where it needs to go like go with that yeah oh 100 uh, percent. just in that situation like you know for for us with elk hunting it was like well if this scenario were to happen or if you know you know if i set my sight at 42 because i think he's going to come in there and then he you know gets behind the bushes and i'm at full draw and then he pops out at 20 yeah. then you got to know and think and so you're putting yourself in a situation where you're like basically you know calling them in like it's it's going to be moving it's going to be you know somewhat quick so that's just why i was saying it seems to be like an interesting choice um yeah from that standpoint but just like anything else it's 100 percent knowing your gear and knowing yeah. you know just being being proficient with it right but um sure. but yeah i mean i i think we kind of covered everything i wanted to 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 go over anything you want to close with uh for guys that are thinking about uh trying to call in some bears you know, from, from a beginner standpoint. Yeah. I mean, obviously just try to get, put yourself in locations where there's a, enough bears, you know, and most fish and game agencies, I mean, even with deer and elk, they're happy to talk to you about densities and areas where there's a lot of them. And then, um, use that to your advantage, you know, also, you can be somewhat selective on what type of country you like to hunt. You know, you can hunt black bears in low rolling timber covered hills, or you can hunt them up at 9,000 feet in avalanche shoots. So, you know, I'd say first and foremost, find areas that have enough bears or a lot of bears, and then find the kind of terrain that you feel comfortable hunting, you know, set yourself up for success there and then go hunt hunt hard be observant and when it feels right set up and call and see what happens and build that scenario in your head and commit to it and you know i wasn't the best at calling initially because i wasn't committed in my head you know but if you you know are dedicated to it you'll definitely call stuff in awesome but now- just but just be ready for <laughs> wolves or mountain lions or really any predator that could be on a landscape to potentially show up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, I guess one thing we didn't just in in that is, uh, any hunting, anything, but how is wind a factor, you know, when you're set on these setups? Yeah. Uh, I mean, wind's probably the number one thing with bears, you know, if they smell you, they're never going to stick around. Um, just like calling anything, man, you try to put it in your advantage and 
use the terrain to force an animal's movement to where they can't get downwind or it's difficult for them to get downwind of you and you know sometimes you set up and call and it's good for five minutes and the wind switches and that's just how it goes you know you just pack it up and keep moving so yeah i guess the only other thing i'd say is we have a another bear film coming out through stone glacier here in february and southeast alaska black bear hunting and we call in three of the four bears we shoot and uh it's going to be a pretty awesome film so if you're considering it that's another little piece of content to throw in the hopper and watch for spring hits so yeah and where can people follow along with you and where can they see these films and stuff like that yeah it's all the films i'm working on right now I, i do work at stone glacier i'm the director of content so any of the film stuff i'm working on will be through uh, Stone Glacier's YouTube, which is super simple. Just search Stone Glacier on YouTube and you'll find it. And then uh, some of the stuff that I do personally, I just share on my Instagram, which is just at Zach Bouton and pretty easy to find there. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, appreciate you taking the time today uh, to, you know, to talk with us about this. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Yeah. Not a problem. Thank you. Yeah.